Life lived one heartbeat at a time all around me. One fragile breath after another in a world sometimes possible to do it. Each soul created for the Creator, honored, enjoyed, celebrated for His good pleasure. Often, though, we forget we are all from the same dust, turning our backs on the need of our fellow humans. Brushed aside, neglected, forgotten, dismissed as too much to bear. Yet the one who made us bore it all for every one of our sakes, for those who are defenseless, for those who hold the most power. The Lord's decree to us has never changed. Protect life. Nourish it. Pour in all the grace you have. Extend all the mercy you can. Sacrifice as you must. Reach long and hard for every hand. Whether it is a life, whether it carries a life, sanctity means that we give all the love back to the God who holds each soul in his hand by caring for his creation as long as we have breath. One thirty-nine, And the guys have some Bibles. If you need one, then as they make their way to the back, get their attention, and they'll get one of those to you, and keep that as our gift to you. It's marked for you at Psalm 139. Most of you know that the last three weeks, because it's the beginning of the year, we did these last three weeks what we do at the beginning of each year. We had our State of the Church address. Next week, I'm going to begin a series on prayer, and then we'll return to finish our study in the book of Acts. Today, the message is focused on our country's continuing battle to value life in the womb and, as we'll see, beyond the womb. This day is known as Sanctity of Life Sunday because it was on January 22nd of 73, that the Supreme Court ruled that abortion was a right guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution. Ever since, pro-life people like us have observed that infamous date to keep the issue in the forefront of our minds so that we can pray and act and see our law changed. Well, this Sanctity of Life Sunday is different from the 49 that have preceded because this is the first since 1973 in which abortion is no longer a constitutional right. In June of last year, the court overruled Roe in a victory for the pro-life movement, a victory that was five decades in coming, but toward the end had come to be expected. In fact, in last year's Sanctity of Life service, I said this, the year 2022 may well produce what we thought was going to happen in 1992, but it failed by a 5-4 vote of the court. And many of us thought it may never happen since the Supreme Court seemed to be so disinclined to reverse Roe. But a few months ago, the court heard a case that asked it once again to overturn Roe v. Wade, and with the current composition of the court, most observers believe that will happen this summer. If it does, as I expect... It will be a monumental achievement on the one hand and also present some challenges on the other. And challenges indeed. In our state, we had a referendum on the ballot in November and Prop Proposal 3 passed, as most of you know, overwhelmingly. 
It not only kept a ban on abortion from going into effect in our state, a ban that had been written in 1931, but was invalidated by Roe, so was just lying dormant. And instead of returning to that, to that state, back to the 1931 law, Proposition 3 changed the Michigan Constitution to allow abortion access, just like Roe did and probably more so. So the victory was short-lived, and although there are still matters that are going to be hashed out in court, the cold water in the face this past November has hopefully awakened those of us in the pro-life movement to a reality we should have understood all along. And that is that the problem of abortion, or same-sex marriage, or drag queen story hour to children, or whatever other consequence our society suffers in its ongoing escape from reality. These are not primarily legal problems, but spiritual. Our mission is not, never was, never will be, to make America a Christian nation, but rather to make disciples. Today we're going to be reminded of what the Bible says about the value of life, but also how to go about winning hearts and minds. We're going to bow and pray and ask the Lord to help us. You may have noticed that our beloved Pastor Larry was not here today, and so Pastor Rich, Dr. Combs, tended to duties that he normally does, and that's because, if you're on our email list, you know that uh, he is in Georgia now with his uh, family because his stepfather, Rex Stanley, passed away suddenly after suffering a, a heart attack. So Pastor Larry and family will be back early this coming week, but we want to remember them as we go to the Lord in prayer. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you that we can come to you as our Father. Because we are your children and we have been adopted by you into your family, and therefore we have the absolute assurance that you hear us, that you care about the affairs of our lives, that you are able to intervene, that you are doing your work for our good. So Lord, we bring before you our brother, Pastor Larry, his mother, Kim, and those who in our congregation are related to, to Rex, who is, now, who is now with you. We think of Victor and Alyssa and, and Emma and Claire and, and Susie. And Lord, we ask you to, to comfort them. We ask you as they make arrangements for uh, honoring his, his life, that you will grant them wisdom and clarity of thought. We ask you to grant them safety as they travel back to, to Michigan this, this coming week. Lord, we thank you that you are the giver of life and that we have as your people the hope, the confident assurance that we will have life forever with you in the age to come when you call us home or return. We thank you that Rex and his family have that confidence. And now, as we live out this life, Lord, we desire to do so, knowing precisely who it is that has given life, the purpose for which you have given it, and then to wisely live it before a world that is rejected you, rejected the giver of life, and therefore doesn't understand what life is. Help us to focus our thoughts on those issues this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You should have received an outline when you came in for the message as we do each week. I say, first of all, that 
I want to look at our position on life. And I want to deal a bit with how we are to comport ourselves as pro-life people. Perhaps especially in this new era with the ability to outlaw abortion state by state. It becomes all the more important then that we comport ourselves in a biblical manner. First we'll deal with our position and then we'll deal with that comportment that we should have. And I say in the outline that our position biblically begins with the fact that life is from God. The Bible says straight up that in John chapter 5, God has life in himself. This is why God can give life since it originates with him and why the Bible can simply start with God in the beginning God. He created but was not himself created. Now everyone, no matter their belief system, must start with something that explains everything. And every system has to assume the beginning of the first person or thing or substance. We, as Bible-believing Christians, assume the existence of God and from Him all else derives. And after you assume the first person in God, life originating from life is much easier to defend than life from non-life somehow arising. The information in DNA that's required for life cannot arise from non-life. And so what's called biogenesis, the necessity that life arise from life, is a problem for naturalism. Those who believe that things just came about in some sort of natural way. Physicist and evolutionist Paul Davies asks, how did stupid atoms spontaneously write their own software? He answers, nobody knows. There is no known law of physics able to, cre to create information from nothing. Creation scientist Jonathan Sarfati, who we had at our church a couple of years ago, some of you remember, in the book Evolution's Achilles Heel said, the origin of information that is encoded in DNA is a tremendous Achilles heel for evolutionary theory. There is simply no natural analogy for its appearance. For information which is neither random nor infinitely repeating to arise naturalistically in the absence of mind or programmed machinery would require overcoming such huge probabilistic barriers as to be rightly called impossible. Atheist Richard Dawkins admitted in 2009 that, quote, the catch-22 of the origin of life is this. DNA can replicate, but it needs enzymes in order to catalyze the process. Proteins can catalyze DNA formation, but they need DNA to specify the correct sequence. Indeed, the origin of the genetic code is, Sarfati says, a vicious circle that naturalism simply cannot explain. And what God did miraculously in creation, he does providentially in procreation. So the Bible can say children are a gift of the Lord. They are a gift in that God is the originator of the life, but also in that the life given is itself precious. The verse goes on to say that children are a reward, they are valuable, they are to be prized. When conception takes place, place and a birth results nine months later, God is behind it all. And that's why Hannah said, regarding the birth of her son Samuel, I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. And the Bible can say as well, when Ruth was given a child, the Lord enabled Ruth to conceive. 
and she gave birth to a son. But beyond God as the originator of life, the Bible teaches that he intricately designs each life. Dr. Combs read from Psalm 139, and I've asked you to turn there. One commentator says this regarding that passage. In the opening six verses, the psalmist talks about the omniscience of God. He knows everything. This is a level of knowledge that the psalmist can't understand, and neither can we. And then in verses 7 to 12, he talks about the omnipresence of God. He made everything, he knows everything, and he's everywhere all the time. You can't be out of his presence ever. And then in verse 13, he moves to where all of that really began in a personal sense. Verse 13, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Just take that first statement, you created my inmost being, literally in Hebrew, my kidneys. You created, you formed my kidneys, which was a term that was used to refer to the complex of organs that made up human anatomy or the inside of the body. You, God, it's saying, formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. The DNA strips that are woven together, you wove them together. You wove together the complex genetic plan that produced me. You were God the weaver. In verse 14, I praise you because I am fearfully. That literally means awesomely. It's a Hebrew word meaning a high level of reverential awe. It's staggering. A staggering thing to think of what you have done in fearfully and wonderfully making me, God. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. I know that you made me. And then the psalmist gets even more technical in verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. You were making me and you framed me. Bones, muscles, sinews, ligaments, tendons, structure. You were aware of all of it. It says, when I was made in the secret place and when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, that depths of the earth is a euphemism for the womb, the hidden place, the secret place. And then verse 16, you saw, your eyes saw my unformed body. My unformed body is a Hebrew word that means something rolled together, something balled up before it unfolded. When it was just a genetic mass, just an embryo, and it was just that ball before it began to unfold. You framed it. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. You, God, wrote in your book everything that was going to take place for my days before any of them ever took place. And so this is God personally, intimately involved in the very first stages of life, life yet unfolded, and God is intimately involved in all of it. So God is not looking at us like a map with some red dots to indicate where we are. God sees deep into us and has known us intimately from conception itself. And verse 17 says, How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. He says, You know so much about me that I can't even count all your thoughts about me. They would outnumber the sand of the sea. It's an amazing statement. God knows intimately everything about you from the time of your conception because He made you and He made every person ever conceived. And that's why Job would say, Your hands shaped me and made me. You clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. 
You gave me life and in your providence watched over my spirit. To the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord said, I formed you in the womb. Now what about a deformed baby? What about those with disabilities of various sorts? Well, none of that is outside the scope of God's oversight and design either. God allows what he does in a fallen world for his good purposes. So the Bible says in the second book of Scripture, the Lord said to Moses, who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? You may remember a famous encounter where a man was brought to Jesus who had been blind from birth and his apostles assumed that this happened because of personal sin in the life of this individual. And so they asked, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So one or the other. Jesus said it was neither, but rather this. He was born blind so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Now we live in a fallen world that obscures the good gifts of God because everything is tainted by fallenness. God gives life, and that life is to be lived to the full. And apart from the curse of the world, it would be indeed lived that way. But, the Bible teaches, the creation waits in eager expectation. The creation itself is going to be liberated from its bondage to decay. So the created world has damage. And so our bodies and the environment are fallen, and so things don't work as designed. And that's why there's infertility and miscarriages. These are seen to be the effects precisely because we know that life is a gift, one that will be fully restored, thanks be to God, in His coming kingdom and in the eternal state. Life is from God. And life is sacred. The Bible teaches that humanity is made in God's image. God created man, first chapter of the Bible, in his own image. That image that only humanity has, humanity, the highest of all of God's creatures, alone reflects God back to God. And even after the entrance of sin into God's good world, the vestiges of the image of God reflecting his character back to him Remain, and that's why you can find millennia later in your New Testament, in the book of James, it says this With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. And that is why, at the time of Noah, God refers to the image of God in man, saying, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Be your cause, for in the image of God has God made man. And so the fall did not obliterate the image of God. All humanity, in Christ and outside of Christ, just by virtue of being human, and creatures of God are made in the image of God. This is a personal resemblance to God. We are persons as God is personal, with the faculties of personhood, of mind and will and emotion. And so when do these faculties of personhood come into being? 
such that only persons can, for example, sin. What does the Bible teach you about when that begins? Well, here's what David said in Psalm 51. I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So Psalm 51.5 indicates when one becomes a soul and it's at conception. And that's why we advocate for protection of life from the point of conception. And it's also one of the reasons that the miraculous conception of Jesus was necessary. Bypassing the normal procreation process. And that is to keep a sin nature from being passed on to Jesus from his, from his parents. Because it happens at, happens at conception. Sometimes we refer to the virgin birth. That is true. But what's, what's behind that is the virgin conception, the miraculous conception of Jesus. Human life, then, is from God. It is set apart. It is sacred. It is unlike any other life that God has made. And, therefore, it is to be protected. And so the Bible says, in the law, Exodus 21, if men who are fighting hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely and there is serious injury to the baby, then you are to punish based upon the injury done to the child. And that will be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. So this is considered a life and a life worth protecting and punishing those who would, who would take it. John Calvin said in his commentary on this passage, the fetus, though enclosed in the womb of its mother, is already a human being. And it is almost a monstrous crime to rob it of the life which it has not yet begun to enjoy. If it seems more horrible to kill a man in his own house than in a field, because a man's house is his place of most secure refuge, it ought surely to be deemed more atrocious to destroy a fetus in the womb before it has come to light. And the protection of life includes the right to self-defense. The Bible teaches that we are to protect life, and that includes protecting it from those who would, who would take it. Self-defense. When Jesus sent his first followers out to evangelize in what were sometimes dangerous environments, here's what he told them. If you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. So you guys are going to go on a dangerous journey. You may have to protect yourself. So get a sword. The disciples said, we have two. Jesus said, that's enough. Now, just very quickly, I'm glad we have a Second Amendment. I, my dad passed away when I was 11, so I was never taught to hunt. But I know some of you are expert hunters. And I'm told that that experience, often from a father to a son, but sometimes from a father to a, a daughter, uh, is a family tradition that, is, is very special. And so I'm thankful that we're able, to, we're able to do that kind of thing as well. Jesus says, you know, two swords are enough for protection. So I'm just going to say this, and then don't shoot. Hands up. <laughs> don't shoot. 
But we're going to talk in a little bit about how we comport ourselves to an onlooking world. We just last night had another shooting of 10, a mass shooting of 10 people in California. This is happening all the time. This is not the fault of gun owners. I'm not suggesting that. I'm just suggesting that we use wisdom in the way we display ourselves toward an onlooking world. And so, and I'm not on social media, and I'm not saying anybody in our church does this on social media. But I don't think it would be wise to get on social media and say, display your arsenal. Jesus says, you know, a couple are, a couple are enough. I'll leave it to you to decide how many that is. And because God cares for life, he requires capital punishment for those who take innocent life. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, because in the image of God, God has made man. Now notice, I said God requires capital punishment for those who take innocent human life. This answers the faux objection that some make to say we pro-lifers are inconsistent if we advocate for capital punishment. But in protecting life in the womb, the life of a child, we're protecting innocent human life. And life is so precious to God that those who are guilty of taking it, it says, forfeit their own life. Taking the life of the guilty is a way of expressing the value of life. And that extends to the New Testament. Romans chapter 13, rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Do right, he'll commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good, but if you do wrong, be afraid. He does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. This is our position on life, where it comes from, why it's precious, why it needs to be protected. But then there is, I say in your outline, our disposition in life. There's our position, there's our disposition as we carry it out. We should be, I'm going to suggest to you from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, more about persuasion than about power, including political power. Politics is fickle, and it can take unexpected turns. Few of us would have thought that after Roe v. Wade was finally overturned just a few months ago in June, that we would find ourselves, in effect, on the outside looking in because our state constitution has been changed radically. You can work for decades and think you finally arrived at just the right laws only to be set back or thwarted, kind of like what happened there. And as you look at the ministry of the Apostle Paul, you don't see him ever appealing and angling for political power. Instead, what he does is he makes his argument, he sets forth his case. He understands that the ultimate law is who rules the heart, not who wins the heartland. Politically, He knows, as he said, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, and therefore we do not battle in conventional ways. So our effectiveness is not to be evaluated by how well we do at the ballot box, or in Congress, or the State House, or the White House. This misunderstanding was why Paul had to defend himself so often in his letters especially his second letter to the Corinthians. 
They had confused Paul's Christ-like meekness with weakness. They thought in worldly patterns rather than biblical ones. And so they were particularly ripe for those who would come along and say, well, where are Paul's results? Why can't he preach with the eloquence that we've come to know and love from the sophists of Greek philosophy? They've measured Paul as an ineffective leader because they're using a decidedly different and worldly set of criteria to evaluate Paul and his ministry. Now, if you've been with us for our series in the book of Acts, you remember that Paul had spent 18 months in Corinth, but then he moved on to ministry in other places. And in the meantime, teachers have come from the outside who appeal to the Corinthians' worldly outlook And those teachers' influence threatens the faith of those to whom Paul had ministered and cared for so deeply. And so it forces Paul now to write to them to defend himself. Something that he absolutely loathes to do, but he does it. Not for personal gain, but for theirs. And it's in that context that he says, in 2 Corinthians 10, though we live in the world... We do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, we have divine power to demolish strongholds. Tanks, rifles, and missiles are the right instruments for physical war, but not spiritual war. And at its heart, the fight for the life of children is the battle for the hearts of men and women. And those weapons of truth have power. They have power to, Paul says, demolish strongholds. I'm going to quote a bit from New Testament scholar D.A. Carson in his amazing exposition of the last four chapters of 2 Corinthians. What can Paul's weapons do? His weapons have power to demolish strongholds. Paul's symbolism calls to mind a classic form of warfare in the ancient world. A prosperous city would not only build a stout wall for its security, but somewhere inside the wall it might also build a stronghold. That is a a massively fortified tower that could be defended by relatively few soldiers. Even if the walls of the city were breached by the enemy, the defending forces could retreat to that stronghold, make a final defense there. Once the stronghold was taken, the battle was over. And so extolling wisdom in the book of wisdom, the book of Proverbs in our Bibles. Proverbs 21 says, A wise man attacks the city of the mighty and pulls down the stronghold in which they trust. And how does Paul do this? How does he demolish these strongholds? He says in 2 Corinthians 10, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. The word that's translated arguments might be rendered thoughts or plans. It's a related term that Paul uses elsewhere with very similar meaning. For instance, Paul describes the progressive deterioration of the human race when he says in Romans 1, although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking, that is their arguments, became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. When he tells us that his weapons demolish arguments, therefore, 
He doesn't simply mean that he can out-debate any opponent, any opponent and drive him shamefaced off the stage. He means something more than that. His weapons destroy the way people think. They demolish their sinful thought patterns, the mental structures by which they live their lives in rebellion against God. In other words, his spiritual weapons tear down what he calls every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And his weapons not only demolish mental strongholds, they're powerful enough to, as we read, take every take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. The picture is of a a military expedition into enemy territory, an expedition so effective that every plan of the enemy is thwarted, every scheme foiled, every counteroffensive beaten. And more so, these designs and schemes of sinful men are captured by Christ and brought under a new authority. The idea in this verse is not simply that Christ so takes hold of people that they think holy thoughts, though that's true, but that their mental structures, their plans, their schemes are taken over and transformed as they come into a new allegiance. Using his spiritual weapons, Paul takes captive every scheme, every mind, makes it obedience to Christ. And So I would suggest to you, friends, that we are people who should make an apologetic defense of what we believe. When I say apologetic, I don't mean we say I'm sorry as we do it. Many of you know that the Greek word apologia in your New Testament means a defense, defending what we believe, and so we get apologetics from it. And so we make an an apologetic defense of, of what we believe. We set forth our argument. We tear down the strongholds, as it were of the false thinking that pervades our culture and gives rise to all of the consequences that we are now seeing. This is, in my mind, pre-evangelism. Something that we started to talk about in our Good Soil Evangelism class just this past week, and we'll talk about more. But we do this in hope and prayer that God uses it to shatter false worldviews as it points to and proclaims the truth of the gospel of Christ. And so we'll just take a few minutes to go through some of the arguments that are made somewhat quickly. In the abortion debate, we deal with arguments about, for example, the life of the mother and, and rape and authority. By whose authority can you tell me what to do with my own body? With regard to the life of the mother, John Jefferson Davis, in his book Evangelical Ethics, writes this, The life of the mother position is widely held in a conservative, in conservative Protestant circles. It's also represented in the official pronouncements of Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and Orthodox Jewish religious leaders. And this understanding, only in those rare cases where continuation of the pregnancy would present a threat to the mother's life, would abortion be morally justified? In a tubal pregnancy, for example, continuation of the pregnancy could lead to a rupture of the fallopian tube and the danger of a fatal hemorrhage. Surgical intervention would be justified as an effort to salvage the life that is some real prospect of survival under those circumstances, that is, the mother's. Given the present state of medical technology, it's not possible to save the human embryo developing outside the normal uterine location. Rather than letting two lives perish, surgical intervention is indicated in order to save the life of that can be saved. 
The intervention is not made on the assumption that the embryonic life is without value. The intervention merely reflects the condition that with existing medical technology, the mother's life is salvageable. The unborn child's is not. It's a very rare circumstance. He goes on to cite another scholar saying, the Bible does not explicitly condemn abortion, but neither does it explicitly condemn infanticide. The crucial question is whether or not the biblical outlook, in the biblical outlook, the fetus is considered human life. If the developing fetus is shown to be a human being, then we do not need a specific commandment against feticide any more than we need something specific against exoricide, that is, wife killing. The general command against killing covers both. And so the burden of proof is on the advocates of a permissive position to show that the unborn child is not human. For example, if a hunter were to see movement behind a bush and shoot at it without being sure that the movement was caused by a human being rather than by an animal, such action would be morally irresponsible, we would all agree. Regarding abortion, any doubts concerning the humanity of the unborn child should be resolved in favor of developing human life. And there's the problem of of rape. It's often discussed in relation to the ethics of abortion. If a woman becomes pregnant as a result of rape, is abortion morally legitimate? During the late 1960s, this issue was often raised in arguments to liberalize the then existing laws, which generally reflected the life of the mother exception only. In a sexually chaotic society where rape unfortunately appears to be on the rise, the question is one of continuing relevance and concern. Rape is without question a physically and emotionally traumatic event for the woman involved, and society and her churches should offer whatever support and assistance to the woman that they reasonably can. But as a matter of simple justice, it is the rapist who should be punished, not the innocent child conceived as a result of the rape. The rapist has committed a crime, not the child who may be conceived as a result It is true that the woman has suffered an injustice. But abortion would represent a further injustice, this time against the unborn child. A pro-life position always, always takes into consideration, friends, that we have two lives in every pregnancy, mother and child. So saying that abortion is ever safe, in whatever form that it occurs, whether surgically or now medicinally, it fails to account for the life of the child. Abortion is never safe for the child. And on the issue of authority, who are you to cram your morality down my throat? Just bear in mind, friends, that all laws are the cramming of someone's morality down someone else's throat, including things like traffic laws. They're based upon the value of human life, even if I don't agree with the speed limit or the stop sign or the traffic light. And so, who am I to do this? I would ask, who do you have to be in a democracy to advocate for laws that you believe reflect your values? And so we argue our case. We seek to persuade. But our ultimate argument is for a transformed worldview, a la what Paul did in Corinth and elsewhere. Our disposition in life is that we seek to persuade even as we recognize the need to legislate. And that relationship between the Christian and politics, 
between the church and the state is a vexing one so often. One year from now, January of 25, we are going to have, in my view, the best person that I know of in the country to speak to that issue, a man named Jonathan Lehman, L-E-E-M-A-N. Jonathan Lehman is scheduled to be with us in January of next year to talk about the relationship between those two things. And so I say in your outline, we are indeed in our disposition pro-life. But what we care most about, friends, is the protection of life, not the, not the prosecution of, of women. We are people who are pro-life, and in whatever laws that we advocate for, in whatever actions we think should be taken, what we care about most is the protection of, of life. And as I pointed out last year, guilt is not always equal. It depends on what one knows and what one's situation is. And that's why we have in our legal system levels of things like murder charges, first degree, second degree, manslaughter. The, do- the doctor who makes money by killing bab- babies is a murderer, but not every woman who finds herself contemplating abortion is in the same situation. And many are not flippantly taking the life of their child. Some may be afraid of their father or afraid of their boyfriend. They have sinned, yes. And the result is the killing of the child, and they will have to live with that extreme guilt. There may be some in this very room who fit in that congregation, and there are ministries, whole ministries, designed to help with that because it's such an enormous problem. Healing Hearts is one such ministry that we're going to unfold into our future counseling center. Better to help than inflict further harm. And being careful with our rhetoric is one way, friends, for us to do that. Because the Bible says this, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. That is in an evangelistic context. Be careful, be wise in the way you behave toward an onlooking world. And so we position ourselves vis-a-vis the world, the fallen culture around us, So that even our right positions are put forth with a wise disposition. And so, yes, we present ourselves as pro-life, but I say lastly, pro-all of life. And I recommend that you cultivate this pro-all of life mentality in your private conversations, in your conversations in the hallway and the foyer, in your social media communications. You think about, as the video that we saw showed, that God cares about all of life, unborn, but then after birth as well. So we are pro-child. And we are pro-woman. We are even pro-foreigner. Because they too are made in the image of God. And I'm not saying advocate for illegal immigration. Don't get me going on that. But as Christian people, let's put a face forward that says, we love you because God loves you and you are made in his image. What we're for should inform what we're against. And so we are anti-trafficking of women and children. We're anti-bigotry against other nationalities and we don't demean people for who they are. More immediately, 
We have opportunity to help women who are in crisis pregnancies with our partnership that I mentioned last week that our sister Leslie Franzel is going to be leading up for us. And our friends at Evangel Baptist have for decades run a crisis pregnancy center. They call it the Downriver Pregnancy Resource Center. They ask us to show an 80-minute video, 80, excuse me, 80-second. I said, I said, I said 80 minute and John Jones just, his eyes just went. Dude, it already feels like I've been listening for 80 minutes. You're going to go for another 80? 80 second video. You guys have that? Welcome to the Downriver Pregnancy Resource Center. We're so glad for the first time. We will find a cozy place to sit with you so we can listen to your story and understand your needs. From there, we will make a plan together. Not only will you leave with some baby essentials, but you'll also have the comfort of knowing someone else sees you and cares about you. At your following regular visits, we will continue walking beside you on the path of the unexpected. We will support you by providing education, personal conversation, and if you wish, biblical truth to answer the tough but important questions of life. Each visit provides additional material support from our donation program of gently used items. If we don't have what you need, we will strive to connect you with another community resource. Pregnancy and parenting is challenging enough, especially when it's unexpected. We love to enjoy a cup of coffee or tea around the table with other moms. Here, we're learning from one another and seeking guidance from God's Word, where we find strength and comfort in knowing we are not walking alone. As surprising as life can be, there is hope, and we'd love to tell you more about it here at the DPRC. You'll be hearing more about the DPRC in the days ahead. Be in prayer for that ministry and our involvement in it. So we as a church, we as God's people, we want to put forth a face that says we care about what God cares about. So we care about life in all of its, in all of its forms. I met a few months ago for coffee with now State Senator Darren Camilleri. At his request, he called. He had seen a quote that I had somewhere, and he asked that we get together, which I was happy to do. And we had a good conversation, and he is a man whose politics, I think I probably don't agree on probably anything, uh, but, but we had a cordial conversation, and I was glad to tell him what is important to us, and I said, perhaps we can find some common ground on things like having laws on your part to protect, protect crisis pregnancy centers, because some of those are being attacked across the country by people who are angry with our, our position, and I said, perhaps you can advocate for laws that will make adoption easier because adoption takes way too long and costs way too much and there are plenty of people who are willing to take these children into their homes if you can make it possible for that to happen and so i think that's the kind of engagement that we want to have with our our culture here's your take-home truth we are called to cherish human life because it's from god and it reflects him let's bow together Father, thank you again for this day. We thank you for it because it is the Lord's day. We can gather with your people and praise you and learn of you. We thank you that we can set aside this day to think about the preciousness of the life that you give. Help us to be people, Lord, who, who care about all of life from conception until the grave. 
Lord, help us to be wise in the way we engage an increasingly secular culture that is paying the price for its rejection of simple truths that you have embedded into your world. Lord, may this be the place that is the haven when the broken bodies, the shattered families need a place to come. May they know that there's a place here who loves them, who can tell them how they can be repaired, how they can be redeemed, how they can live life as it was designed to be. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together for our closing song.